Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's a weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor, I'm a podcast host, and someone who cares deeply about science communication and is really grateful to have a front seat as it unfolds uh, the really interesting things that are happening in biotechnology and in science communication. So today we're going to speak with Dr. Gil Diamond. He's on the Scientific Advisory Board of Maxwell Biosciences and is a professor in the Department of Oral Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Louisville. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Diamond. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, this is really fun. So your uh, your research is kind of colliding with the space that I'm really interested in personally and something that my research program is working on. So I've been really ex- excited to have you on the podcast. So we're talking about peptoids today. And so could you give us a little sense about what is a peptoid and how is it different from a peptide? If we remember our basic biology, uh, a peptide is a string of amino acids. It's just a short protein, basically one chain of amino acids. And uh, an amino acid has a specific structure. It's got a carbon and it's got four bonds coming off of the carbon. And one of those is a hydrogen and another one goes to a carboxylic acid. A third one goes to an amide. And the fourth is this functional group. And there are 20 different functional groups. And that's what makes the different protein structures. So a peptoid Uh, is a chain of monomers, just like a a peptide, except the unit is not an amino acid. It's like an amino acid, but the functional group comes off of the amide instead of the central carbon. And what that does is uh, when you link them together in a chain, it still has all the functional groups as a peptide would. So it has that typical structure, but the bonds are not a typical peptide bond. And the importance of that is it means it can't be digested away by enzymes that digest proteins. Ah, okay. So I see. So that's the fundamental difference is you just make a much more durable peptide, but with the same sort of signatures on the R group. So the side that is kind of the variable entity, the variable moiety of an amino acid, that still stays the same. So you get a lot of the same chemical features of a peptide, but something that isn't prone to be uh, metabolized by uh, peptidases and other um, surveillance mechanisms that destroy rogue peptides. Right. That's exactly it. And uh, my research has always been uh, on antimicrobial peptides, which are uh, peptides that are found in nature. We make them every species makes them and they're part of our natural defenses against uh, microbial infections. So these are, these are short peptides that have antibiotic activity. They kill bacteria, fungi, and even viruses. Uh, and anytime anyone has uh, isolated a new one, they've usually started a uh, 
an anti- a pharmaceutical company devoted to developing these as antibiotics because they're really uh, excellent uh, at doing what they're supposed to do, which is kill microbes. Uh, and one of the best things about them is that microbes don't develop resistance to them. So they sounded really exciting on paper as uh, potential antibiotics. The problem is they can be digested by proteases. They're not as stable when you try giving them. So that's why these peptoids uh, were examined. And these were developed by uh, my colleague, Annalise Barron at Stanford University. I see. So that's, it's pretty cool technology because we know so much about emerging roles for peptides in developmental processes. And we see them in bacteria, in plants, in animals. And so what are some of the things that peptoids can do to affect biology in lieu of a peptide? Well, what we're looking at right now are potentially using these peptoids as antimicrobial agents. And specifically, the paper we just published looked at them as antiviral agents. There's a Obviously, as we know now, there's a distinct need for new antiviral agents in addition to vaccines. Uh, it's very hard to kill viruses, and usually when you want to develop an antiviral agent, you develop it against a specific virus. You have to target some particular uh, structural feature or enzyme uh, of a particular virus. Uh, the great thing about antimicrobial peptides in general is that they are broad spectrum. So something that kills one virus may kill a whole, uh, whole class of viruses. So, for example, all envelope viruses. So uh, we are taking this peptoid technology and applying it to that by seeing if we can uh, develop a broad spectrum antiviral, although we're focusing specifically on one virus to, to begin with. Okay, so what, what virus is that? And, and how much have you seen you know, efficacy against that? We're starting with uh, herpes simplex virus 1, HSV1, which is the uh, virus that causes cold sores. Uh, that's what it's most mostly known for, but it also causes blindness. It's one of the major causes of viral blindness. And it can actually even get uh, into the body and, and uh, be fatal uh, under certain circumstances. Uh, it's very, very difficult to kill HSV1, to kill herpes. Um, there are no vaccines against it. Uh, and we felt that this was a good target uh, to begin the research with, especially doing a topical application. So mm -hmm. we're looking at topical application against herpes labialis, which is the cold sore. I guess the thing I think about is if it's lethal to a virus, how do you avoid collateral effects? And we know that a lot of antivirals will target something like, you know, reverse transcriptase, which we don't really have. So it, it, they uh, tend to target these aspects of viral metabolism or viral life that aren't present in eukaryotic cells. So how do these particularly affect virus, but not have collateral effects in, I guess what I'm asking is, you know, what is the mechanism by which they work? Right. This is a really interesting question. So I'm going to go back to the fact that antimicrobial peptides and peptoids kill bacteria and fungi as well as viruses. And what we've known for a long time is uh, one of the structural features of these peptides and peptoids is that they are cationic. And the first thing that they seem to target is the membrane. Now, the membrane of bacteria and fungi is different from our own membranes in that it's 
predominantly anionic on its surface. So the first thing that happens is you get this electrostatic interaction and attraction between the peptide or the peptoid and the membrane. And then it inserts into the membrane and disrupts the membrane. And you can actually see this on electron microscopy where the where it actually opens up pores and disrupts the entire bacterial or fungal membrane. And that's what really makes it able to be useful as a potential drug because it won't target our own membranes. And you can test this against uh, mammalian cells in culture, and even they've been tested certainly in vivo. They are really not cytotoxic or toxic to the host. So the question is, what about viruses? Now, there are, we can divide the viral world into enveloped and non-enveloped, so we're only going to look at enveloped viruses for now. And enveloped viruses come about by bursting out of the cell and taking a piece of the cell membrane with it, and that's what coats the, the virus. So that's an enveloped virus. The envelope is our own host cell membrane. So you would think right off the bat that these peptides or peptoids wouldn't interact with the, the viral envelope because it's the same thing as our own membrane. It's got the same uh, phospholipids on the surface, but it turns out that that's not true. It's at least with certain viruses, specifically certainly with HSV1, because it actually gets its membrane from inside the cell, and it, it has evolved a way of putting the negatively charged phospholipids on the surface, and actually in doing so, it's mimicking uh, cells that are undergoing apoptosis in the cell, and, and it actually attracts uh, macrophages to to, to to take it in. It's a, it's a way that the virus has actually evolved uh, to become more virulent. So the virus now has a different membrane than our host cell membrane, which makes it a very good target for the peptides or the peptoids in this case. And the first thing that we see happening is on electron microscopy, when we treat the virus with the peptoid, we see the membrane being stripped away. So how do you determine the sequence of a peptoid? Is it based on simply taking a known antimicrobial peptide and giving it that reinforced linkage? Right. So this is the brilliance of the work that Annalise Barron did. Uh, she based the structure on a human antimicrobial peptide called LL37 or cathelocidin, which is a linear peptide that is uh, cationic and has broad spectrum activity against a variety of microorganisms, including viruses. And she designed these particular peptoids to be much smaller. LL37 is 37 amino acids long. Some of our peptoids are only five residues long. They're, they're much smaller, which makes them much cheaper to make. Um, and they are much more stable, but they still have some of the same characteristics as the original LL37 upon which they were designed. I see. So these are synthesized, I, and I don't know how you make a peptoid, but this kind of linkage is a lot like peptide synthesis without a ribosome. You're putting together amino acids with a different kind of connection, basically. Is that all just done in synthetically? Right. It's all done synthetically. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that should have been clear to me. I just, this is just really fascinating stuff because of some of the work we're doing in the laboratory and uh, seems really parallel. Well, let's come back to this in a minute. Right now we're speaking with Dr. Gil Diamond. He's on the Scientific Advisory Board of Maxwell Biosciences. And we're talking about peptoids, like a peptide, but an oid. It's 
like a peptide, and some of the places where it's being used in modern therapeutics. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. The average life of podcasts is 12 episodes, but the Talking Biotech Podcast continues to go strong into 300 episodes, and it's seven years. With between five and 10,000 downloads a week, this podcast is now approaching 1.5 million downloads. Thanks for that. Now, despite the efforts of activists, some folks in SciComm, and a certain university trying to pull the plug, this educational exercise surges forward into what promises to be the most exciting period for biotechnology. Biotech tools will have ended a pandemic, cured sickle cell disease, and offer new inroads in fighting cancer and neurodegenerative disease. We'll see crop solutions that aid sustainability, and new discoveries that we can't even imagine now. Back when the podcast started, CRISPR was just a drawer in the refrigerator. So thank you for listening and sharing the podcast in your social media networks. There's a lot of excellent podcasts out there, and the fact that this pirate ship continues to sail with a larger audience is something we're truly grateful for. So thank you! The best times are yet to come, and count on the Talking Biotech podcast to help inform and clarify, so that you can better share the beautiful science that will shape the future of medicine, agriculture, and conservation. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Gil Diamond. He's a scientific advisory board member at Maxwell Biosciences and a professor in the Department of Oral Immunology and Infectious Diseases. It's a mouthful. (laughs) At the University of Louisville. And um, in the School of Dentistry, nonetheless. So um, we're talking about peptoids and these unusual molecules, which are mimics of peptides, only with more concrete linkages that evade uh, the enzymes, which take apart peptides, which makes them a more durable entity inside the cell. The question I'm really thinking about is, you know, we're still under a international, well, we're still in a pandemic which by definition is international. We're still in a pandemic with SARS-CoV-2. And have you looked at peptoids and how they might work against that particular virus? Yes, we have, actually. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, the great thing about peptides and antimicrobial peptoids is that they target the membrane. So since we were looking at an envelope virus, herpes simplex virus one, we decided to look at another envelope virus to see if the same thing was happening. And we course, used SARS-CoV-2 as a model. Uh, my colleague here at Louisville, Dong Hun Chung, was uh, able to do this experiment for us because he has a, a BSL-3 facility. And when he added the uh, peptoids to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, we saw the same thing happening. That First, it inactivated the virus uh, around the same concentrations that we would see with herpes. So it's suggesting it's working the same way. And when we sent, uh, sent uh, it to Uh, collaborator at at Galveston, uh, Misha Sherman, who uh, did some amazing cryo-EM for us, we could see the same thing was happening uh, with the SARS-CoV-2 as happened with herpes. That is, it destroyed the membrane. It destroyed the viral envelope. 
So it, it shows that the peptoids, at least for these viruses, act in the same way by targeting the envelope and could potentially be used for a number of viruses, including SARS-CoV-2. So it makes me think about application. I mean, we could go through this long uh, pathway with the FDA and all the other places you need to go to get a drug approved. But what about uh, something like just a prophylactic use? Like, can I put this on a doorknob and get rid of uh, something like coronavirus? That's a very good question. Uh, certainly in the antimicrobial peptide field, people have been looking at surface applications and in other mimetics and uh mimics of peptides. They've been certainly trying that. So it's it's one area that we could certainly look at. Right now, that's not what we've been doing, but it's it's certainly a great potential future application. Well, there also are so many problems just that are bacterial. Are there specific peptoids that can take out a bacterial target? What we're seeing in uh, our research and certainly with collaborators at other laboratories seems to be that we have a variety of these peptoids with different sequences of different structures, just like there are many, many different antimicrobial peptides. And there, there seems to be some specific, I don't want to say specificity, but some are more active against bacteria than others. Some are more active against fungi than others. Some are more active against viruses, even though there's going to be cross activity against all of them. Yeah, I guess I, I ask from the standpoint of a plant scientist, we got 60 million six citrus trees that have a bacterial problem. And they've talked about antimicrobial peptides, and they've shown some efficacy in some cases. But peptoids might be a good place for uh, for this kind of application, because I think that that, ap that use would probably just require EPA clearance rather than, you know, FDA, since it's not being used as a drug. So, you know, are you guys thinking outside the box in those kinds of areas? Uh, I certainly know that uh, the people at uh, Maxwell Biosciences are thinking outside of the box for a number of different areas. So uh, we are looking to collaborate with uh, many different laboratories for different applications. I think citrus greening is a, is a great target because uh, I was in Florida and I know the devastation it's causing. And uh, I had actually thought about peptides, not only, you know, uh, using antimicrobial peptides or peptoids, but even thinking about the own plant biology, the, the native peptides from the plants, uh, and maybe how to enhance their own natural defenses. That's a really interesting point because there's a variety of developmentally regulated peptides in plants that play roles in everything from meristem development to disease presentation and have a more durable form of that may be really uh, useful for, you know, spray on to cause a trait. You know, it's really an interesting thought. Um, but how, how else are you seeing um, these things, these peptoids applied to different viral diseases? Do you see anything for, say, HIV or something like that? So we haven't really planned that far ahead. Right now, we're just trying to get a handle on uh, how, how it works against HSV-1 specifically, and then potentially branching out to other viruses to see if it can work um, and to really understand their biology. It's, it's in the beginning phases of, of the antiviral development, but there's certainly plenty of room to grow. Certainly HIV is an envelope virus. It, it could have activity against it that I, I'm almost positive that it will. Uh, we just have to think about the best way to, uh, to develop it and uh, to deliver it. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. The big question is targeting. How do you get it to the specific cells where it matters? And that's why using HSV as a um, basic, you know, proof of concept is so brilliant because you could topically apply that thing and, and make it work at at the site by which the infection is apparent. You know, versus having to get it in the you know B cells somewhere. But that's a, that's a really uh, that's really cool. Uh, is there what are the existing uh, treatments in the pipeline in terms of say HSV, but what else is next? So for us, we're working with, we're working on HSV as a, as a target, uh, as a topical target. Uh, we we're, um, doing some mouse studies just to, to prove that it can actually work in, in the animal in vivo as a, as a topical treatment. Uh, and from there we will expand to see where else we could, uh, potentially, uh, develop it uh, to, what other targets? We're looking at other viruses right now in vitro to see uh, which peptoids are active against which viruses at what concentrations. Uh, we've examined quite a number of viruses, so at least uh, no, uh, collaborative laboratories have done this and shown that it has activity against a number of different viruses. So uh, once we get all that data, we'll be looking next at animal models to see uh, to see how active it is in vivo and how, what the best way it is to deliver it. So there's this product that's currently being moved towards commercialization called Claromer. And what exactly, you know, it, so is it, what exactly is that? And it's been, and what is it demonstrated efficacy against? So Claromer is really the overall term for these antiviral peptoids that could be used against a number of different viral diseases. Yeah, and is there, um, it lists a few on their website, and that's why I was kind of curious that it, that maybe there was, um, you know, effects against hepatitis B and C, which can be really difficult to treat and cure, especially in the case of C, you know, very expensive to cure, you know, mm -hmm. and, and are there other, other preclinical um, uh studies that are happening on a suite of different viral targets? Right. So right now we're looking at, uh, in addition to HSV and, as you mentioned, hepatitis B and C, and as we published uh, against the coronavirus, we're also looking at influenza, as well as some other non-envelope uh, viruses to see if we can get activity against that. Um, there are some, uh, I guess, less popular ones that you wouldn't think about, things like chikungunya virus and dengue that uh, we're thinking about as well, things that are very hard to kill. Yeah, well, that's the beauty of this is that you have a kind of ability to turn on a dime, right? That and if you have a new target, you can test it very rapidly. Whereas we saw with, you know, SARS-CoV-2, it took a little while to develop therapeutics. I mean, well, you know, a few months, right? But if these kinds of things can be put into pandemic applications in days rather than weeks, months, or years, it's a real step forward. And so, you know, having this available and kind of in the queue for the next pandemic is, is a real positive. Yeah, I think it's really exciting. There's uh, unfortunately so many viruses out there uh, that are causing very uh, terrible pathologies, including SARS-CoV-2. And uh, the great thing about the Clarimer uh, brand is really that these peptoids can be developed against quite a large number of viruses. It's not like a, a single antiviral um, that uh, you have to design against a particular virus. 
Yeah, that's really cool. I guess, but the one question that comes to mind, and maybe I'm this is the precautionary side, is what happens if you kill all the viruses? <laughs> uh, then we have to start looking at other diseases to, uh, to <laughs> work on. No, is there any selective advantage? I mean, our, we know that our genomes are loaded with the damn things, and they've played major roles in shaping plant evolution and evolution of other traits, even in humans. Blue chicken eggs come from a latent virus that uh, took up residency to knock out a, a pigment gene in, in, in chickens. So viruses play a really important role in shaping evolution. Can we live without them? <laughs> well, the question is, are the pathogenic viruses the ones that are shaping evolution? I, I think we will always have viruses around, but uh, I don't think it are, that these are going to be the ones that we're concerned about. Uh, it's really just a few very pathogenic viruses that we have to worry about. And I think another important thing we have to think about when we're talking about antivirals, especially drugs like the, the Clarimer brand, is that it's not really going to kill every single virus. If we even taking HSV-1 as, a, as an example, put uh, a cream with, uh, with this particular peptoid or a mixture of peptoids onto the lesion, um, it's not going to kill every single virus that's there. But what it's going to do is work in concert with our own immune system to try to uh, address the lesion and uh, clear the, the viral infection. And that's the way it is with pretty much any antiviral, but these in particular, that it'll work together with our own innate uh, antiviral defenses. I don't think you'll ever get rid of the virus, the virus per se, from nature, but at least it will help with the pathology. That's a really good point. And, and actually, it could probably work really well in concert with other type of uh, virus uh, antivirals, like, you know, acyclovir great stuff, you know, nucleotide analogs that inhibit uh, the replication process if you get them early. But uh, maybe this could extend the window by which other antivirals are more effective. So maybe this is part of a suite of treatments um, as we go forward with antiviral therapies. Yeah, we could even see using this together with something like acyclovir. Now, it's a, it's a, it's a really good point that I didn't think about before. Well, all of this must have gone through animal trials at some point. So, you know, what happened when you applied this, say, in, you know, mouse or other animal models, or if mice get herpes? <laughs> well, mice can be induced to have herpes. Uh, we have just now uh, worked on a model. Uh, it's a published model called a lip scarification, where you make a little abrasion in a, a, the lip of a mouse and then you apply some virus to the lip, and then after between five and seven days, they develop a cold sore. Uh, we just really have optimized that model now, and we're about to start testing the, uh, the drugs as a topical application to this uh, particular lip model of uh, herpes in mice. There are other herpes models in mice. There's the ocular one, so they, they make an eye infection, and there's also skin infections. We felt the best one would be something that's really appropriate, that's that's similar to what we really plan to, to develop it as, which is as a, as a topical treatment for herpes labialis. I see. I, I, mean, I thought that maybe there was a job out there for a mouse kisser. <laughs> <laughs> Not good for mouse genital herpes. Um, <laughs> but that's, uh, that's, that's really interesting that you can use that kind of model and it, and it works in that type of application. Because, you know, there's a lot of folks who have problems with uh, – with uh, herpes, with HS, HSV, and no really, no real effective therapeutics that seem to 
really eliminate the problem. So how about with other types of um, uh, uh, related viruses, you know, zoster or other things like that? Right. So uh, that, that's the next step. Once we have uh, worked it out with uh, herpes simplex virus one, we will actually then go to HSV two and uh, then begin to look at some of the other ones. Uh, we know that, that LL37, the molecule that this is, these peptoids were based on, is active against all of these viruses. Uh, we published, for example, against a, a similar herpes virus, Kaposi sarcoma-associated herpes virus, mm-hmm. that LL37 kills that the same way by destroying the membrane. So we think that, that it's this common mechanism of destroying the membrane that completely inactivates the virus and prevents it from infecting that will allow us to develop this brand as as an antiviral. That's a really good point, too, because, you know, think about shingles, which people get these very painful lesions that are similar to uh, the, you know, herpes simplex one oral flare up and only that they can cause you to go blind and they're extremely painful. But what a great place for a topical application. Right. We're hoping that uh, this will be the first of many different applications. Well, that's all really interesting. Well, thank you so much for joining me. We're, we're speaking with Dr. Gil Diamond. Uh, he's a professor in the Department of Oral Immunology at the University of Louisville and also a scientific advisor for Maxwell Biosciences and talking about peptoids. So look for peptoids near you. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast as we go into our seventh year of weekly podcasts and over 300 episodes. It makes my head spin that this is still happening um, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. So on the road to a thousand, we're 30% of the way there. And it's all because we have a wonderful set of loyal listeners who share this with their friends and uh, really give us such great reviews. So thank you for that. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.